welcome back folks to the Africanist, uh, your favorite podcast. Today I am going to take you on a trip to West Africa with the eminent Professor Falungom. Uh, Professor Ngom's research interests focus on written history of Africa, the interactions between African languages and non-African languages, the adoptions of Islam in Africa and Ajami literatures in Africa and the African diaspora. Professor Ngom, welcome to The Africanist. Thank you very much, Bamba. All right. So today I want us to, to talk about your research on Ajami. And in 2016, you published a very, very comprehensive work on Ajami literature and how it has been used in the diffusion of Islam in West Africa and other parts of the world. And the book is titled Muslim Beyond the Arab World. In 2017, it won the biggest prize of the African Studies Association, the Melvin Herskovich Prize, and it still continues to inspire a lot of scholarly work. So could you tell us what pushed you to take that endeavor to research Ajami and the division of Islam in West Africa? All right, well, thank you very much, uh, Bamba. Uh, this is a great uh, initiative. Uh, and it's, I think it's very timely uh, to begin to look at uh, Africa uh, with different approaches. And look at uh, Africa the way Africans see Africa. Uh, when you look at uh, Africa, the way it's portrayed in the books and the media, the picture is often negative. And one of the uh, uh, important reasons why the picture is often negative is the treatment of Africa as illiterate. Uh, literacy, mind you, has always been used as a measure of civilization, of culture, of intellectual capacity. So the tendency to look at Africa as primarily illiterate has been used in academia and in the media mm -hmm. to disregard local knowledge systems, to write histories of Africans that are very different mm -hmm. from the actual histories of the people. So that was my primary motivation because many of us were trained in the Eurocentric mode, whether in the French, English, or Portuguese, and also those who were trained in the Arab-centric schools mm -hmm. have often overlooked productions of knowledge by Africans themselves. So it's only very late in my career that I stumbled on texts that looked like Arabic, but that were not Arabic. Hmm. I had studied Arabic as a second language, but I didn't know that those texts existed. And so when I began to dig into the matter, I realized that it was not only localized, mm -hmm. it was actually very widespread. And the more I dig, the more I found the scope of this literature. So naturally, I was, I was drawn to it because the knowledge that I found was completely different <laughs> from what we were told about Africa. Uh, so I began to look at the Murid traditions because I am from Senegal and I have more access to the Murid sources being born in a Murid family myself. And uh, I applied for a grant from the British Library to challenge the notion that there was only oral literature. People didn't believe me. And I remember in my first years, uh, people were saying, well, even if there are a Jami text, there must be only a few. Hmm. And they must not be important. 
So the British Library funding of 2010, 2011 allowed me to digitize over 5,000 pages of Ajani documents mm -hmm. that were produced in uh, the mid 19th century to the mid 20th century that documented the genesis of the Muridia tradition, its culture, its educational system, its worldview that challenged the entire knowledge system that have been produced in Europhone sources. And, and I think that the case of the Murid is only one of many examples among the Mandinka, among the Hausa, among the Fulbe, from East to West Africa uh, and all the regions, these sources of knowledge have been ignored. But I think it's only fair to require and demand that they be included Mm -hmm. in the story of Africa. In the same way, French sources are used when you study French culture. Mm -hmm. In the same way, English sources are used when you study American culture. You would be ridiculed if you projected yourself as an expert of France without speaking French. Exactly. You would be ridiculed if you projected yourself as an expert of America without speaking English. Yet, most scholars of Africa are illiterate in the languages of the people they study. That is true. So that paradox that I call the linguistic paradox in academia mm -hmm. is what I sought to reverse. And that's generally uh, my new research interest. Now, for our listeners who are not familiar with the terms Ajami and Muridia, how can you explain to them in simple terms yeah. those two concepts. Yeah, Ajami is simply the modification of the classical Arabic script to write any language that is not Arabic. So the same way the Latin script has been modified to write French, to write English, to write German, to write all these European languages, it's the same way the Arabic script itself has been modified to write many world languages. And the Arabic script itself was also modified from Aramaic script mm. <laughs> to write Arabic. Mm. So they took Aramaic scripts, that's right. modified they, them to, to have Arabic, Arabic scripts. And that's what is the Arabic script. Well, it's the same tradition that the Chinese, the Uyghurs, the Muslim Chinese did. It's the same tradition that the Spaniards during Andalus did to write Spanish with Arabic script. It's the same thing that the Africans, Hausa, Wolof, and others have done. Basically, they enriched the script. They added dots here and there to represent sounds that exist in their language that did not exist in Arabic. So that's what Ajami means. And uh, in the Americas, that's, that's interesting, that's an area that I hope, I will probably, I hope to have a graduate student who mm -hmm. would at some point uh, specialize on unearthing the knowledge in Ajimi and Arabic produced by enslaved Africans in the Americas. Because many of the slaves who were brought here were also literate in Ajimi and Arabic. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the most common cases, uh, there are several cases, but one of the most common cases that I like to say, to tell is the one of uh, Abu Bakr al-Siddiqui, mm -hmm. who was born and uh, educated in West Africa and was uh, sold into slavery in Jamaica. 
but he was more literate and educated than his master. Mm -hmm. And his master, realizing that, asked him to keep records of the plantation. Mm -hmm. So Abu, uh, Abu Bakr kept the record of the plantations in English Ajami, writing English <laughs> with, with, with the Arabic script. So, so this is an open area of research that I think uh, I hope to have a graduate student who will uh, 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 study that. On Muridiyya, mm -hmm. your second question was on the Muridiyya. Muridiyya was a Sufi movement that was founded in Senegal by Sheikh Ahmed Bamba. He was born in 1883, uh, around that time. And uh, what's important and more known about the Muridiyya is its uh, emphasis on work ethic and nonviolence. And so Bamba, the founder, was uh, deprived of his freedom for over 30 years and uh, was able to cultivate self-reliance, work ethic, determinism, nonviolence, and uh, resilience in the face of adversity. And he was able to accommodate the needs of the masses who came to him uh, because the movement was born at a period when the wall of culture, the wall of society structure was destroyed by colonization. So the society was in uh, uh, turmoil. And what Shahmud Bamba did was to give hope and a new approach that enabled people to thrive in a context of colonial oppression. And uh, I think today, the Muridiyya has become one of the most powerful cultural, uh, religious, and economic force in, uh, in Senegal and in the diaspora, in the Senegalese diaspora, uh, because of the ethos that Sheikh Ahmed Bamba cultivated in his communities in the early days. And the, and the Ajami traditions of the Muridiyya have contributed significantly in disseminating the teachings of Ahmed Bamba to the masses, because these guys don't speak Arabic. <laughs> mm -hmm. So how do, you, how do you convey the teachings and ethos of Ahmed Bamba to the masses? You had an emergence of scholars uh, such as Serim Bajate, Musaka, Sambajarambai, and others, who decided that they were going to translate the teachings of Ahmed Bamba to the masses. And they composed poems, beautiful poems, that are rooted in the local culture and Sufi traditions that resonated with people. So if you listen to their poems, if you are a wall of speaker, you cannot help but be influenced and, 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 and listen to them. Because these poems resonate with local culture. They use local metaphors, local maxims, local phrases. And they ingest in that the ethos of work ethic, of faith in God, of, mm -hmm. of, of steadfastness. And these are the uh, general themes that emerge in this literature that have made the Murids uh, very unique in terms of defining their identity proud black people who are Muslim, not the reverse, mm -hmm. and who can resist influence from external actors. And that's why, for example, the Murids are very proud of their economic and cultural autonomy. Uh, you can see in every, in all of their projects, including the new mosque they built 
the Mosaic and before <laughs> that the railway uh, linking Jurbel and Tuba. All of these are done with Murid effort and Murid wealth and Murid power, Murid physical uh, power. And that is because these were part of the teachings of Amud Bama. And I think today we have a lot to learn from the Muridia, as we have to learn from other traditions of the Tijaniya, of the Qadriya, and uh, other traditions in Africa that have documented their own lives using Ajimi uh, that so far we have overlooked. Mm -hmm. So it's a sea that uh, is open, I think, to next generations of students. How were these people using Ajami in their daily communication? In other words, were they only using it, whether it's the Muridia or the House of Folks or the, the Fulani, were they only using it for religious purposes to convey religious messages or they used it for other purposes? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, no, Ajami was used for both religious and non-religious uh, text. In fact, uh, again, here it will be useful to give you a parallel with Latin. Latin emerged in a church environment and evolved from there to become a language of government, the language of justice, the language that is used in administration, a means of communication that goes beyond religious spheres. It's the same pattern. So Ajami emerged from a religious context of education Mm -hmm. But expanded clearly, people's lives are not only limited to religion, okay? People Correct. are shopkeepers, people mm -hmm. are farmers, uh, people are businessmen and businesswomen. So Ajami is used to document people's lives. So you find letters, you find contracts. One, one of the most interesting documents that I find that's so interesting is a um, diplomatic agreement mm -hmm. between King Louis XVIII of France and King of Bar in the Gambia. The King of Bar. That's right, in the Gambia. Mm -hmm. So that's 1817. Right? So the King of France came to the region to look for commercial opportunities. And when he arrived, the King of Bar soldiers required that he shows himself to their authority, which is their king. Mm -hmm. And when the two monarchs met, the King of Bar asked him what he was doing there. And the King of France had to tell him that I'm here because I would like to have a trading post here. And the King of Bar asked him to draft his proposition. Naturally, the French king dictated his proposition to his scribe, wrote it in French. <laughs> the King of Bar responded to that proposition, asking his scribe to write it in Ajami Wolof. Ajami Wolof. Those two texts actually are being juxtaposed in the deal. Mm -hmm. yeah? And I found that archive in Aix-en-Provence, uh, Les Archives Boutinard. Okay? So what's interesting is that you see that Ajami, in fact, during the colonial encounter, when the balance of power was equal, Ajami users were regarded as literate and the, and the system was regarded as a legitimate diplomatic means of recording documents. But it's so interesting when the balance of power shifted, all the descendants of King Bars are now treated as illiterate. <laughs> mm. So, which means literacy ultimately is also about power. 
Definitely. So, so if you wanna if you wanna understand, for example, the business transactions of say uh, many of the Fulani shopkeepers in Senegal, or the Wolof shopkeepers, or the Mandinka uh, travelers, uh, or uh, the Songhai uh, herders, these are documented in not in Arabic or French or Portuguese or English. They're documented in their own scripts, in their own Ajami form. So uh, we have, if you go to our website called the African Ajami Library. African Ajami Library. Ajami Library, which is at Boston University. If you search, if you search African Ajami Library, you will see we have now collections of over 30,000 pages of Ajami document mm -hmm. with some Arabic that include Ajami Yoruba, Ajami Wolof, Mm -hmm. Ajami Fula, Ajami Hausa, Ajami Nupe, and uh, Ajami Malagazi from Madagascar, mm. and uh, Ajami Hausa, no, Ajami uh, Amharic is being processed, is already collected, is being processed. So, uh, and these documents include both religious and non religious subjects, uh, letters, uh, you know, educational materials, uh, religious stuff. Basically, they encompass uh, the preoccupations of people. Awesome. Now, coming back to the relationship between Ajami and the expansion of Muridia. Uh, traditionally, in the Islamic religion, when people deal with texts, they use the Arabic language. But then we see that in the case of the Muridia, you have these magnificent poets like Musaka who decided to resort to Ajami instead. But at the same time, we have the founder of the order, Shah Ahmad Bama who himself, mm -hmm. who kept writing in Arabic. Yeah. Could, could you explain to us yes. how yes. the shift happened from That's Arabic good. to Ajami? Point. And then why did the Sheikh Shah Ahmad Bama himself kept writing in Arabic? That's a very good question. It's a very, very good question. One thing first to understand is Shehamudu Bamba was a great pedagogist and strategist. When you look at his, his life through the documents that are uh, left behind him, mm -hmm. you, you see that he was, a, he, was, he was just a great strategist. So Amudu Bamba wrote in Arabic primarily, although there is evidence that he, in his teaching he did use Ajami, mm. including uh, he would draw on the sand and he would explain to you until you understand for people who are at the basic level. And we have evidence that even in his training with Khali Majahat Kala, there's a joint poem that he wrote that involved part Ajami. It's a bilingual. So there's no you know, doubt that actually he mastered Ajami and he actually used it in his instructions with some of the masses. Mm. But Bamba was interested in two things in celebrating Prophet Muhammad, whom he regarded as his role model. He regarded Prophet Muhammad as the epitome of righteousness. And he wanted to write him, and as, as he said in one of his poems, in a language so that his relatives and people who are Arab speakers would understand what he is saying. That's number one. Number two, he also wanted to communicate with the Muslim intelligentsia. <laughs> The because the broad, yes, the broad, the broad Muslim intelligentsia around the world communicate in Arabic. 
So if you want to make your point understood and, 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 and engage them, you're going to have to write in Arabic. And that's why, for example, when he raised issues of racial discrimination, Racial it was only yes, it was only meaningful that he had to write it in Arabic. <laughs> okay, so you see, so you have here a spiritual goal, but you also have a communicational goal, a strategic communicational goal with the elite uh, Muslim community who communicate in Arabic. Right now, what do you do with the masses? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> okay, so he decided to tell. In fact, he instructed his followers because all of them were actually initially writing poems in Arabic. So Musaka was Musaka, writing Yes, Musaka, they were all trained mm -hmm. in Arabic poetry because that was the training that Muslims received. Mm -hmm. But Bamba had to tell them, I want you to convey these messages to the masses, let alone explain these things that I'm talking about to the masses. And what that, what that did was that they treated that as a religious obligation. And many of them, as including Sainbai Jahate, Morkaire, and Sambajarambai, who actually went to uh, Mauritania to meet him. In fact, that's so interesting, and I need to point that out. Mm -hmm. The Ajami tradition of the Wolof was not born in Wolof land. It was born in Mauritania. In Mauritania. That's correct. Interesting. Which is northern yeah. Senegal. That's right. Like which, is where, which is where Senegal Arabic is, is spoken. <laughs> okay. Yes. Because when Bamba was uh, in exile there, some leading scholars, traveled there and submitted to him and became his disciples. At that point, they were, they were among the leading ports in Arabic. And Bamba assigned them the responsibility to convey his thoughts in their local language, this is Wolof. And from that point, many of them agreed that they have destroyed their Arabic pen as a religious obligation to convey the teachings of Bamba to the masses. So that's, that's how, actually, they were the first one is upon their return, right? that Ajami, the power of Ajami became important because they had now committed, they were now committed to no longer write in Arabic, but to write in Ajami as a mass communication strategy. So Ajami became therefore a tool, the primary tool of written communication among the Muris, which led to the flourishing of Ajami literacy. And I might add there one point that is so important, and that is, again, to challenge these notions of oral versus written. When you look at Ajami traditions, what you learn is that the dichotomy between oral and written doesn't hold because Ajami poems are recited and chanted, and poems that are chanted are also written. Where do you draw the line? Very difficult. Okay. So these are complementary modalities of communication. So when we study African cultures, we need to understand that the categories of mutually exclusive components of written versus oral does not hold in this tradition. And these Ajami poems, therefore, were written and they were chanted in rural villages. Farmers who would, especially the Serers, who were second language speakers, many of them became Murid, became Muslim, joined the movement because they heard these songs such as Jezau Shaku, Yonu Gedio, Yonu Jerich. And they heard these songs about Tahmis Bubuolov, 
they heard these songs that resonated with them. That's what attracted them in the Muridiyah. And many of them, it's actually through hearing these songs that were so beautiful and that meant a lot, that conveyed values, values they, that resonated with them. That's what attracted to the movement. And it's only later that they learned the script. So I call that process music-derived literacy because it's not really, literacy is acquired here through ABC. Mm -hmm. But literacy is acquired here through hearing first some beautiful, meaningful songs and it's that beauty and that, that meaning, that's, that the importance of the songs that you receive, that, that let, later leads you uh, to the desire to learn the script and, and to become literate. So uh, these are areas of further work that needs to be done. But I think you touched on an important point, and that is Ajami as a mass communication strategy and Arabic as both a language of devotional worship by Bamba but also a language to reach to the, intel, the Muslim intelligence. Mm -hmm. And so, and this, this actually mirrors all the choices that Bamba has made. Bamba was very strategic. And that's, this is why he was able, despite 30 of, over 30 years of uh, being deprived of his freedom, to be able to create such a powerful movement. You see, one thing that has always shocked people, and, and, and that's, that's the reason why Muridia has still is still uh, attracting a lot of interest. Right? How can someone who was not free for over 30 years, <laughs> mm -hmm. how could he create something that is so powerful? Well, it's because he was very strategic. <laughs> and and, and he, while he was using these strategies to educate people and conveying in them the important virtues of hard work, resilience, belief in yourself, etc. These were being done by his followers who were speaking the local language. So the intelligence services of the French could not capture that. <laughs> because they did not master the Yes, that, that's why, right, that's why, right, that's why, right, yeah. They didn't understand what was going on, mm -hmm. you know. And in fact, it's so interesting if you go back to uh, around 1889 uh, <clears throat> when Tuba was being founded, there were people who were being arrested by the French colonial uh, administration for disturbing the peace, mm -hmm. okay? Because they were, they were screaming loudly. They were doing, what they were doing were two things. They were either reciting the Qasais of Bamba or they were reciting the Wall of All Songs. Interesting. Okay? But the French thought that these were barbarians and civilized. They did not know that these were engaged in mass communications. Now, an important educational reform that was going on. And that's why even when they deported Bamba, the movement didn't fall because the foundations of the institutions that he created were already there. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, I think that's, that's very important that people miss. And it's, it's, it's because Bamba had already created the infrastructure before he was taken away. And so it, did not, it was hard for the Muris, but the, the structure was very solid. It didn't fall. Interesting. Now, here he is a shocking 
thing because when you read your book you see that although as you mentioned earlier Musaka Morjarambai and all those poets were literate in Arabic they were regarded as uneducated that's right yeah. and they regarded their use of ajami as basically a lower language yeah. a inferior yeah. language so yeah. therefore we see a kind of ethnolinguistic and that's, that's the right. term that you use of course yeah. ethnolinguistic beliefs that ajami and even african languages yeah. are inherently inferior communication tools yeah. okay can you tell us yeah. more about these yeah. challenges that well that that, that, that that that's a good point and yeah, that's a good point but it's also related again to uh, the construction as i told you earlier of africa mm-hmm. as an illiterate backward place right so if you treat a place as backward necessarily the culture the language of the people are also treated as backward unable to com- to, to convey complex thought so mm-hmm. that's part of the tradition of colonization but it's not only limited to colonization and that's why it's important to highlight that the same pretensions of superiority that came through colonizations were preceded by another form of hegemony of arab hegemony that many muslim shy away because it makes them very uncomfortable mm. well but we have evidence if you look at just the history of islam it's not only in africa Ajami, the concept was first used to refer to Persians as barbarians. Mm-hmm. Because Persians were different, were, were different from Arabs. And so to show that they were inferior, the Arabs called them Ajam. So it's only later that the word Ajam evolved to mean the writing of other languages using the Arabic script. So as a result, Persians had to use Ajami to separate themselves from the Arab chauvinistic and hegemonic pretenses. It's the same pattern that you have here in the wall of. We are Muslim, but we're not Arab. What's wrong about it? Nothing is wrong about it. Nothing. <laughs> Being Muslim doesn't necessarily mean foregoing your cultural heritage. And those are choices that some Muslim leaders have made in Africa. Bamba is one of them. Bamba is one of them who differentiated and made clear that there is nothing wrong between being a proud African and a proud Muslim. And that and that being a Muslim is not necessarily doesn't necessarily mean that you will uh, lose your ethnolinguistic and cultural heritage. And I think that's one in fact threat that you find again not only among the murids. If you go to the to Futa Jalon, you find similar positions by, say, Cherno Mombeya, mm-hmm. who took the same position when discussing with uh, Alaj Omar, for example, who had the position that we should not teach in uh, local languages Islam because he thought that might pose a danger for Arabic. Mombeya had to tell him, look, I'm talking to farmers and herders fishermen who are full bay how do i get my message across mm-hmm. if i don't use the language so so what it means and the point that i'm trying to touch here on here is that you have what i call two modes of dealing with this issue the position that i call the monoglossic position 
monoglossic position. Monoglossic position. Mm-hmm. And that ideology of language is assuming that what language is superior than all languages. Mm-hmm. And one culture is superior than all cultures. And that contrasts with what I call the polyglossic ideology of language, which treats linguistic diversity as divine wealth, as a gift, as a beauty. So scholars have, have different positions on these different two different approaches. Wherever Ajami has flourished, scholars have adopted a view that is more aligned with the polyglossic ideology of language. And as a result, that's why you have a very rich Ajami literature among the fuller of Futajalo, and not a lot of Ajami traditions in the Futatoro of the Pula descendants of Elijah Omar. Because of the different linguistic ideologies, the ideologies of language. <laughs> so, so I think that um, one poem that I think that I, that I think is important to address these questions more fully for you and uh, your listeners is the Tahmis Bubuolof by Musaka. So that poem is a very important poem because in that poem Musaka argues that Hebrew was important not because the people were superior to any group but because the language was used as a tool to convey divine message. That's how the language earned prestige. And he said Aramaic was also important. Not the speakers, not because the speakers were superior, no, but because the language was used as a tool to convey divine message. So Arabic was also important and prestigious, not because Arabs were superior, but because the language was used as a means to convey divine message. You can see what he's saying. And then he said, Wolof is equally important because it is being used to convey divine message. So in his view, any language that conveys divine thought and divine belief acquires prestige. And so I think this is the drive that has made uh, uh, Wolof Ajami thrive and Ajami thrive in many other communities. And it is clearly a challenge of, of, of racial and chauvinism, uh, of what they perceive to be part of the things that came along with Islam in Africa. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and it, it also highlights the diversity in views within the Muslim community, mm-hmm. uh, both in Africa and beyond. Interesting. So, uh, still talking about the, the, the challenges. In your work, you mentioned that the challenges that external observers face when trying to understand the complexity of the Muridia order. Some of the first Western scholars, for instance, who studied Muridia, like Paul Marty, yeah. who was working for the French colonial administration, and Donald O'Brien, went as far as predicting the failure of the movement. For them, the movement Shah Ahmad Bamba initiated was just a fleeting religious yeah. phenomenon that was doomed to fail. Yeah. So w- what were these scholars yeah. missing in yeah. their analysis? Yeah. Why well, would think, they yeah, completely yeah, sidetrack? Yeah, that's a good point. And that's, that's, again, because they disregarded local voices. Mm-hmm. They came with what I call theory-driven, top-down, Eurocentric frameworks. So they studied the Murids from a Marxist point of view, struggle of classes. 
They completely disregarded, and I said that understanding the religious dimensions and uh, ethical virtues that motivated the Muris were not important because anyway, they're the savages. They don't have that level of, of uh, sophistication. Hmm. That's why their predictions failed because they did not take into account the local voices. In fact, what we know, what we now know is that really what made the movement successful is actually what they left out. <laughs> it is the religious dimensions. It's the local ethical traditions. It's the beliefs that have been ingested through the education, the Murid education that I just talked about. That self-reliance, master of your destiny, work ethic. Don't treat the, blood, the, 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 the French as superior. Mm -hmm. Believe in God. These are the features that have made the Muris successful, but they have overlooked them because of, again, the European Eurocentric tradition that assumes that European models of studying Africa based on European framework will work. And that's what, and, and it has not changed. That's still what's going on. Because they did not speak the language, Wolof. They did not in, interview people. They did not even look at the text because they didn't even believe that there were texts that were relevant <laughs> and, and and they couldn't understand them i mean regardless if they look at them or that they wouldn't understand they, them but even I mean, the arabic even the arabic documents mm -hmm. there were arabic documents that bumble produced okay marty spoke English, uh, arabic but mm. but again it's the pretension that even if black people have written something it must not be important it has no value and i think uh, but in the case of uh, Donald O'Brien, it's an interesting case because uh, him and other colleagues at some point had to recognize that their prediction didn't work. Hmm. And, uh, and, and I was very honest. Uh, and they pub I think he published an article, I think it was the uh, 1980s, uh, being shocked that his predictions did not uh, uh, occur and uh, wondering why. Well, my book attempts to provide that answer. Mm -hmm. The answer is that you have overlooked the data. They were telling you, they were not hiding. They were telling you, <laughs> you just didn't listen. And mm -hmm. I think that's why it's important in our, in our days to listen. How can you write the stories of people without listening to their voices? So the story of Africa that is being told is a single story. Mm -hmm. The story of the European or the Arab, Ibn Battuta or Berber, Ibn Khaldun, who come and write about Africa. And of course, they pick the worst that they could, they could find. In any case, in any culture, there is bad and good. No culture is perfect. So what we were saying is that we're not calling for denying wrong traditions and, and challenges of Africa. What we're calling for is a comprehensive treatment of Africa that gives voice to all facets of African societies, mm -hmm. that recognize African voices, both written and oral, as central in understanding Africa. And, and that, that's just a fair request because it is the same thing we do when we study other traditions. So it is high time. And I think one last point, we need to make sure that in the training of Africanists, of future Africanists, mm -hmm. that they are trained in the languages and cultures of these societies. Definitely. So they don't make the same mistakes. Mm -hmm. and, and, but very sadly, 
most institutions, especially uh, non-Title VI centers, who don't have the means, they resort to French, say, for example, if you're going to Senegal. Yeah, they resort to English that. if you're going to Gambia. Well, <laughs> who are French speakers and who are English speakers in the Gambia? Very no more, people. no more than twenty percent of the population. Mm -hmm. So we need to change that. In the second chapter of your book, entitled "Ethics Over Ritual," you delve into Bamba's contention with Muslim clerics of his time and with the local aristocracy. So, what was his point of yeah. contention with these people? <laughs> uh, did they eventually <laughs> find find agreements? Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. Yeah, well. You see, that's, that's also interesting because when you read the stories of Shayamud Bamba derived from Marty, you don't know a lot of the conflict that actually he had, not with the French, but with local Islamic uh, leaders, right? So it's only when you read the work of uh, Shayanta Babu, uh, Fighting the Great Jihad, that's where you see, you see, you begin to see that actually there's another story here. So... The challenge that Bamba faced was that the educational system of, of his time was not responding to the local needs. It was not creating Muslims who were constructive members of society. It was creating education, Islamic education had become a symbolic capital that people use to gain material wealth, to side with corrupt leaders, to side to support kings like the Lajon Gadilatir Job, and, and others who actually were not, were not moral, they were immoral. Okay. And so when in 1883, when his father, father passed away, who had served as, a, as an advisor to King Labjor, he was asked to come and replace him. And then, of course, he was asked to replace him with the idea that he won't have any material needs anymore. Of course, if you become uh, an advisor to the king, you know, your, all your material concerns are addressed. And Bamba, as an ethical person, living up to, this, to, to, to one important threat in the Sufi tradition that corrupt leaders should not be followed by Muslim leaders. Mm -hmm. Bamba said no. And not only did he say no, but he said it in a pretty uh, powerful way by telling the leadership that he would be ashamed to be seen by angels on the side of, of uh, corrupt sultans because such leaders, such Muslim leaders who hang with corrupt leaders are like flies who feed on excrement. Hmm. So Bamba was very, 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 very uh, courageous. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's where his problems began. But you can see from... Uh, the narratives of that period, that he was essentially interested in reforming the Islamic education system so it is more ethic-centered, mm -hmm. so, that, so that it can address what he, what he thought to be the, evil, the ills of society. And that mm -hmm. was corruption, and that was uh, violence, uh, that was uh, uh, unfair treatment of minorities. For mm -hmm. example, that's an important dimension. Bamba was against the world of caste system. And that's what he was calling for. Naturally, that created a clash. Okay. And so he, he spent um, a few months uh, in uh, Mbake Kajor, where he decided that he was going to chart a new course and that he, he did not think that the Islamic education of that time was practical 
and that was helping the, the especially the marginalized folks that he was going to go to uh, Bakebaor, which was he had thought he would found he would find peace there. Well, it didn't turn out that way. Uh, there too, uh, they challenged him, uh, and so he had to move out and with Ibrahim and a few group of disciples to go to Darussalam. It is in Darussalam that they began first to implement his educational vision. The first Daru Tarbiya actually began in Darussalam. And there, uh, Sheikh Ibrahim was central <clears throat> in uh, the construction and implementation of, the, of Daru Tarbiya. And then, of course, two years at the, uh, there in Darussalam, he wanted to be far away so he can actually fully implement his educational vision. That's mm -hmm. what led, led him to Tuba. Okay, Tuba mm -hmm. was very far away. He had decided to go to the furthest place so that they could leave him alone. <laughs> leave, leave, yeah, him leave him alone. alone. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, and I think it was in Tuba really that um, he really implemented fully his educational vision. And I think it is that educational vision and training that he provided that actually were the foundation of the success of the movement. Awesome. So yeah. that's a good question. So that's a very good question. That's a very very good question. Bamba was very practical. He was a practical practical, practical uh, educator. Mm -hmm. He did not it, want to train. He did not want to train a Sufi who is so ascetic that he is in the forest with animals. <laughs> and no, 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 no. He wanted to produce a Muslim who is productive member in society. Mm, interesting. You mentioned uh, Sheikh Ibrahim Afal, who was yes, also uh, a Ibrahim, very yeah? fundamental figure in the Muridia order and in the life of yeah. Sheikh Ahmad Bamba. Can you briefly tell us who he was? Yeah. You see, Shabra Fall is uh, probably one of Bamba. the most... I, I have a book project that I never finished because I got so many projects uh, uh, going on. Ibrahim mm -hmm. I have so many documents on Ibrahim uh, that I collected over the years. But Ibrahim is probably the most misunderstood uh, Muslim leader mm -hmm. across Africa. Right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, Ibrahim picture doesn't fit very well <laughs> in the traditions of Muslim education in Africa. But the truth with Ibrahim is Ibrahim followed the traditional, classical, Sufi peripatetic learning. Because if you look at Ibrahim's history, based on archives, his own documents, including the book that he wrote, Jezbu uh, Murid, you see that Ibrahim was actually living up to the to the ideals of the group of Sufis that are called Malamatiya. And these are the people who hide their righteous deeds. Mm -hmm. These are the people who prefer to show that they are bad people and they hide and perform righteous acts. These are the people who are afraid of ostentation, of showing off. So when Ibrahim Fahl came to Bamba, he had already been educated. In fact, if you look at his maternal lineage from uh, Njarewaki, they're actually highly educated Tijaniya uh, scholars. So Ibrahim was already highly educated in his motherly, in, on his mother's side because he grew up there. On his father's side, he came from the uh, world of aristocracy that has ruled the region. But people, again, tend to emphasize the traditional roots, his aristocratic root, rather than his educational root. When actually Ibrahim, uh, Bayangiran, Serin Bayangiran of Jurbel, one of the leading 
uh, Moody scholars today told me mm-hmm. that Ibn Fal was the best expert in Quranic exegesis. He said that when the other scholars, Saint Muhammadu uh, Lamin Job uh, Dagana, and others had issues they did not understand, it was Ibn Fal who clarified them. Interesting. So we don't know who is Ibn Fal. We don't know. What we know is the uh, caricatured picture of Ibn Fal. Uh, and I, that's why if you look at my book, there's a point where I arrive, I kind of dodge it. You know, <laughs> there's a point when we talk about the prayers, uh, whether he prayed or he didn't pray, I dodge it. I, I decided to say, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And I don't want to, I don't want to get, and those who know, they can talk about it. Sometimes that's, that's the best that's, answer. That's, that's beyond me, you know. <laughs> I think I think there's a lot to be known about Ibn Fal, but one key point that has mm-hmm. to be made about Ibn Fal was he was the master of ethics. It was Ibn Fal that created many of the murid traditions. For example, not sitting at the same level with your serene, not looking at your serene straight in his eyes. Uh, the, 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 the murid etiquette and discipleship, these were is with the work of the Bafal. So, so some of the toughest shadows, the toughest uh, crown warriors who have joined the movement, uh, uh, they were sent to Ibn <laughs> he, 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 he was the man who handled them. You know? So he was really uh, pivotal in the foundations of Murid traditions. Uh, but I think there, there, there needs to be a book that uh, is written about Ibn Fal that's drawing again on Murid sources. There's actually a lot of Murid sources on Ibn Fal that's circulating in Ajami texts in Murid communities. I have one, uh, 40 uh, Murid elders who knew him mm-hmm. and who told their testimonies about him. And it's, it's a nice volume in Ajami uh, <laughs> that I have I have hand transcribed it. I need to translate it. I have mm-hmm. his book, Jezbu Murid. And in that chapter, I have a section on Ibn Fal. And one of the things in those sections that are interesting for me, that made me, that gave me a pause, was when Ibn Fal was telling people, do not exploit children. Because uh, exploiting children is like, is like taking meat from the mouth of an animal. Hmm. And in, where he was saying that you should be committed to God in the same way uh, someone you should be afraid of God. In the same one, a soldier is afraid to go into the battlefield without guns. <laughs> so when they asked him about fasting, he said, well, he does not understand fasting for a month. Because for him, fasting is permanent. And it's the fasting of the human limbs, you see. Wow. So how do you place that? How, how do you deal with it? I mean, he, he was in a different dimension. Yeah, so that's why I say, you know, he I was in a... Yes, yes, yes. That's why I say, Ibn Fal, man, you gotta, you gotta be careful, man. I'm not gonna talk about Ibn Fal a lot. <laughs> All right, well, let, let, let's get, yeah. let's get out of his file then, and and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and talk about something else. So, okay, okay, recently in the listserv called Research Africa, which is I think uh-huh. hosted okay. by Duke University, there has been uh, a very interesting discussion thread, and the discussion thread is. Uh, entitled Anti-Blackness in the Arab World yeah. and the Violence That Doesn't Get a Hashtag. Yeah. And 
this was also the title of an op-ed written by a young lady named Bahira Amin. And she talks about how following the death of George Floyd, there was a global movement calling for justice for George Floyd and and all these uh, folks who were murdered by uh, the police. Is that similar oppression and exactions are happening in the Arab world against black folks. And nobody's saying anything about that. The Arab leaders are dodging the issues. The rest of the black Atlantic are also not addressing the issue. And several, several uh, scholars, including you, Mona Hassan, chimed in. And the discussion has been very, uh, have been very passionate. (laughs) Very passionate, but also very constructive. Yeah. And this is one of the things you said in uh, one of the one of your emails to the group. You said slavery has deeply shaped the relations between blacks and Arabs slash white Moors for centuries. The usual convenient denial, downplaying, and treatment of slavery and anti-black racism as an exclusive Euro-Christian problem one often hears in the Muslim world are misleading and contrary to the facts. And you continue, scholars, Muslims, and non-Muslims need to deal with this issue and enduring pandemic in the same way Euro-Christian slavery and its legacy are being challenged around the globe. Now, several people chimed in and said that, well, the way you use um, the term, for instance, Arab-Muslim slavery is, is wrong. Yeah. Uh, what do you say to these people? Yeah. You've, touched, uh, you've touched on a good point. The problem we have is that, uh, and I think I'm first very glad that you asked this question, but I'm also very glad that this is being now talked about. Because mm-hmm. there has been a double standard in the exploitation of black people for a long time, in which many of us accomplish. And that is, we can talk about European racism without any limit, mm-hmm. right? But once we begin to talk about the same evil that has existed within the Muslim community, especially among the Arabs, for centuries, we're told not to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And not only that, when we begin to talk about it, Muslim scholars and other Muslims, light-skinned, and also white liberals try to lecture us uh, on conceptual nuances, nonsense, <laughs> you see, and they tried, and, and we know this this script. We know this script, okay. And the, the the sad part is that we are in a we are in positions that we can't be intimidated. There's nothing they can do, mm-hmm. but they would destroy people who are young who would do that, and that's why the problem has endured, because. Younger students or junior faculty who don't have the means and don't have tenure or don't have the possibilities to uh, move upward would be quiet because in their networks, they will ensure that you get your lessons. Well, we're not in that situation anymore. And it's our people who are being killed. And they're being killed worse in the Arab world than they're being killed in America or other European nations. So we're not going to sit here and listen, let people tell us what is the right concept to use. The problem is more serious. You see, these conceptual discussions 
that we shouldn't use Arab Islamic. We should be using Arab Muslim, or we should be using Islamic. Are all part of the strategy to remove the religious dimensions. Yet, when Arabs in Mauritania enslave Africans, they do that using religious arguments. Like using Islam as a using using the, of course yes for enslaving yes black and if Africans. You, even if you if you look at some of even some of the slaves, if you ask them, why mm -hmm. don't you leave your master? They will tell you because I will be I will be sinning, I will be violating Sharia. So, and this is not only it is what I'm, what we're talking about is not only one phenomenon that takes place in only one place. It is across the Arab world in many places. And so how do you do justice to this old widespread tradition without naming it? Mm -hmm. And we're being told, you, you, you know, uh, you're going to use, you're going to have to use Islamophobia, all Islamophobe and all of and that. And Islamophobia, my take of Islamophobia is, I think it's an easy shot for people like me, because I'm Muslim. Mm -hmm. I'm not an Islamophobe. I can't be Islamophobe. Mm -hmm. But does Islam condone hypocrisy? Nothing. No. How can you see truth and deny it? And then you call yourself Muslim, and then you're going to lecture me about a hadith. <laughs> you see? So that's why Moses and I, Moses is, is not a Muslim. I'm a Muslim, but we have a moral and uh, academic obligations mm -hmm. to keep these people accountable. And, and this and is Moses, not Moses Ochuno and Ochuno, That's right. That's right. University to make sure that the historical records, that the history is not rewritten. Mm -hmm. That we're not going to let people who have no experience of racism, who are actually perpetrators of racism or complices in the oppression and enduring oppression that continues even now. All of us and everyone has seen slaves being sold in Libya. Libya. All of us know how they take away the passports of maids who work in Lebanon, in all the Arab world. Mm -hmm. all, of, all of us know. Or and telling them us, that they shouldn't, they can't have babies, black babies yes. in, those, in those places. And now, and now they're telling us that we're Islamophobe <laughs> because they want to shut us down. That's what they have done in the past. Mm -hmm. I think we think that uh, my, my, my own position, and I think it's Moses' own position and the positions of many people, is that enough is enough. And we're professors. We don't have to learn these nuances. We know them. We teach them. We teach mm -hmm. these nuances in our classes. We don't need that. What we need is a concept that reflects the reality. And so we keep our Arab Islamic concept uh, as we continue uh, to address it wherever we find it. And I think that uh, I'm glad and we will, I'm glad that the discussion is going on. And uh, I think that it's high time that we do justice mm -hmm. to the millions of people across the Muslim world who were victimized simply because they're black and who were used. And that's the other interesting thing. Right? So you meet a Muslim, Arab, or light-skinned here in America, they call you brother when they need you. <laughs> That's the truth. They exploit you. That's the truth. I mean, we all know that. 
But as soon as you get out of that context, you are an abid, you're a slave. Mm. As one time I met one guy, he was in Poland. He gave me a left hand to greet me. Wow. Got the left, left hand. Left, left hand. Which, which means a I lot. Gave, I gave him a left hand too. And he had a pose. And he asked, well, I'm sorry. I said, well, I know you've been, you've been doing that and no one challenged you. Wow. And so, so for people to tell us these, all you have to nuance this and that, yeah, we, we take it as 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 insulting. Yeah, call we a spade it, a spade. You know, mm-hmm. we, we we take it as insulting because because they're not enduring that. They have no idea if they are white liberals. They have no idea if they are Arabs. They're perpetrators because if they are not, they would denounce it. So we're not. That's why we 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 you know we're very committed. We don't think that uh, injustice has to be addressed in one part and one religion and left in the name of Muslim solidarity. Hypocritically, mm-hmm. we don't, I don't agree with that posture. And so, so that's why uh, the discussion has been very intense and I'm really very happy, mm-hmm. honestly, that it's being done so that the taboo about Arab racism is fully talked about. So we don't. So it's no longer put under the rug. Oh no, this is the behavior of just a few bad apples. This is it's not historically not true. I mean, how can you make those claims in a public discussion when this information this information can be factually verified and falsified? Like, like uh, one colleague who argued that blacks are better off in the Arab world than they are in the West. Wow. But you make statements like that when yeah. you know in your heart this is mm-hmm. false and you mm-hmm. call yourself Muslim and you question your other uh, person who calls himself Muslim. You see. Anyway, my, my own position mirrors Shah Ahmed Obama's position. And that is uh, he denounced racism when it was very difficult to do so. I will follow his pattern and model and I will call the spade the spade. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, wherever I find it. So for us, this is only the beginning. We're ready for the long haul. We're ready for the long haul. Uh, the uh, uh, the millions of people who have died, who have been castrated, uh, the women who have been uh, violated, uh, they Raped. deserve, they mm-hmm. deserve less. They and deserve. it is still going on yeah, it is. in places like... Libya, as you mentioned, Mauritania, it's, it's across the, Arab, you, you the see, and that's the problem. North Africa. You can't, you can't just say it's in one country. Yeah. If it was in one country, we would understand. Mm-hmm. It is not. There is no single Arab country where you, you don't find this, this, this treatment. And what, what do they share? What's the general threat that binds all of them? It's race. It's religion. Religion. It's Islamic justifications that they have used. And so, and we, we expect it to drop that because it's not politically correct. As if, as if Islamophobia is graver, is more serious than racism. Mm-hmm. But would you agree with um, one of the scholars in, the, in that discussion said that it is not the religion itself that is inherently discriminatory against blacks, just like Christianity was not inherently, is not inherently discriminatory against see, any group but people I, in I power like yeah. misinterpret the message 
and used it for their own benefit. Do you agree with that? My, or? my, my position, my position is that there are Islamic texts that have put the positions that have put the black black people in a bad position, and those texts have been used. And those so, texts were written by people, like I said, who who had something specific to gain. So, so, the, but but those texts are Islamic. That's mm-hmm. my point. Like if, if you say you are Muslim and you produce a document and you interpret that document to mm-hmm. enslave somebody, mm-hmm. you claim yourself as Muslim and you draw from an Islamic tradition, who am I to say that you were wrong? You define it for yourself. So my position is that those texts need to be acknowledged and addressed. Mm-hmm. We need to talk about those texts. We need to go to the roots rather than saying, oh no, it doesn't exist. This is Islamophobia, it's made up. Yeah. No, I don't think that's the solution. The solution is to say, okay, what madhab, what fiqh text is creating these interpretations? Mm. And to see how we can fix them. That's, that's my position. Because I don't think that by talking about it and not talking about those texts and actually going to the text, we will, I don't think we will ever address the problem. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I say again, I take the position of Shah Obama, which clearly was actually an attempt to do exactly that. And to say, this is how mm-hmm. Muslims should be interpreting diversity. That racial discriminations is, is unfair, right? And, and we know he tried to implement that in his life. But why don't other Muslims do that? That's, that's the and they tell us, question. And they tell us we're supposed to be quiet. That's the million dollar question. So, so now, would you, would you suggest, because to address this issue, uh, racism in the Arab slash in the, the Muslim world, you also have to address it from a political standpoint. Change the laws, policies, just like right. it's happening in the West. Train people yeah. to identify and address those Problems. race yeah. and discrimination issues but also denounce it vigorously, yeah. denounce vigorously yeah. uh, those, the treatment or mistreatment of people of color in, yeah. in the Arab world. Yeah. Now, how do we go about that? Do yeah. we need another summit where we talk about all of that? Yeah. Do we need more conferences yeah. no, I think, to acknowledge I the about, issue? I, I, how do we I, go I, about I, it? <laughs> that's a complex, that's a very difficult question. One thing that I know, mm-hmm. the first thing we need to do is what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. is to challenge these denials. Mm-hmm. You can't address a problem unless people identify it as a problem. <laughs> okay? So our, our, the first elementary phase we're doing now is actually blowing up this cover-up with these arguments that we know are part of the script. Mm-hmm. Attacks or you are Islamophobe or you hate Islam. Uh, that's why you are making these claims, okay? And, and that the Arab world is perfect. Okay? We need, the first thing we have to do is to make sure that these stories never pass. That's number one. Once people own it and take responsibility of it, right, then we have made some progress. Then Muslim leaders, including in our countries in Africa, mm-hmm. need to be open about these things because they know. Who in your culture, in your, in your city, your hometown, 
doesn't know or have experience in Mauritania and other places. Everybody knows. But they can't talk about it because this, of this so-called hypocritical <laughs> solidarity. You see, a solidarity that kills you, that has killed your people. A solidarity that you, that, that you don't have when you find the same evil in other people. We need, I think, as Africans, and I'll probably end there, mm -hmm. as Africans, we need to defend our interests. And that cuts across religion. We can no longer accept in the 21st century that what's happened uh, 100 years ago is still happening in Libya. We cannot let that continue. Mm -hmm. Wherever we are, when we face these denials, we have to challenge them. And, and I think that's what we're starting to do. And I hope that with these kind of conversations, it will become now normal so that younger generations who actually are afraid to participate because they're afraid to lose their privileges or to be undermined so that we can empower them. Mm -hmm. And I think if this becomes part of the conversation, an honest conversation, it will be a constructive conversation. We're not saying that all Arabs are racist. We're not saying that. We're not saying that all Muslims are racist. We're not mm -hmm. saying that. What we're saying is that there is a tradition of racism that has never been challenged. Mm -hmm. And we need to challenge that. And we don't agree with anyone who is telling us that we should be quiet, that everything is perfect, that it is us who don't understand. We call that nonsense. <laughs> So uh, I, I think that I hope that this conversation will continue and that it will reach a larger number of people outside of the listserv and that I recommend all my listeners to read that article uh, written by Bahira Amin and it's entitled uh, Anti-Blackness in the Arab World and the Violence That Does Not Get a Hashtag. It's a very good read. Yeah. So I want to ask you like lighter questions now. It's a tradition now to ask our guests, like just feel relaxed questions. And the first one is, what are your, or the top three novels you've read? Uh, novels? Uh, the, 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 my favorite, I will begin with the favorite. You know, mm -hmm. Buchi Emecheta? Buchi Emecheta, yes. The Joy of Motherhood. Joy of Motherhood. Mm -hmm. That's my favorite of all. Great book, yes. Because I see my mom. Hmm in that novel. I see, I'm a feminist uh, by heart. I see the struggle of the African woman mm -hmm. to support the family. I see myself as a kid, you know, running around uh, in, that, in that novel. Okay. Uh, the beautiful, I, I mean, I'm a classic. I like classical. Classic stuff, African huh? literature. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the beautiful ones are not yet born. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's, that's another good one. And uh, my third one uh, will probably be Ngugi uh, Wachongo's Matigari Manjurungi. Oh, Matigari. That's a the good classic. one. That's a, that's, that's, a, that's a very good one. So yeah. I, read, I read old, old stuff uh, that <laughs> inspire me, uh, that, 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 that has some important African ethos, African values. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, they help me... Uh, keep my roots uh, alive. Awesome. Now, what are your top three dishes? Oh, <laughs> uh, that's, a good, that's a good question. Uh, I only eat rice. <laughs> oh, rice? Most, well, what kind? Jollof? Uh, jollof, rice. jollof rice is my favorite. 
so, now so that, do you uh, mean by Jollof? Do you mean Chebujan? Chebujan, yeah. Chebujan. Okay, because Chebujan is my, you know, my you know the, the Jollof war. The Jollof war. No, we're war. the Nigerian. We have our and, brothers and sisters yeah, yeah. from Nigeria. Yeah, we're the originals, and yeah. we, we don't call it even Jollof yeah. rice. It's Chebujan. Yeah. And Jollof yeah. was in an empire in Senegambia. They yeah. still don't I know. I always that. find the same. <laughs> when I travel to Nigeria, I had a lot of uh, discussions about it. Uh -huh. Yeah, but Jollof rice is my favorite. And the second one is uh, simple, uh, you know, Sebon? Oh, yeah. Oh, of course. Huh? What? You know Sebon? Every, every Senegalese know what Sebon Yeah, is. okay. Yeah, <laughs> so that's my second one. And my third one, uh, my third one is what? My third one is Supukanja. Oh, you know? Supukanja, okay. Supukanja, yeah. So that's, right. uh, those are my three ones. Well, those are three solid ones yeah. right there. Are, yeah. 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 And then, then this is the last question. Uh, top three places you have not visited yet, but you would love to go to uh, okay. sometimes. Uh, that's a good one. I would love to visit uh, uh, the Inca ruins. Hmm. Yeah. I like, I like uh, old stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, I like to see old civilizations, uh, what they did, how they did it, and get some understanding of I'm an anthropologist and linguist and uh, drift into history. So I like, again, things that date back uh, a while ago because uh, I treat them as important to understand the steps to take for the future. So that's one place. Uh, the second place uh, I would like to visit is, uh, that's a tough one. Of course, I always go there, so I'm not going to mention that. Cuba <laughs> is a place I always go to. Well, uh, we, we want to know which place is that. We, we say, uh, no, Tuba, you know, Tuba. Oh, Tuba, Tuba, uh, okay. Tuba, yeah. I always go. Tuba, Senegal. Yeah, Tuba, Senegal. The other place I would like to visit is, uh, is uh, I would like to go, I'd like to, go to, to Rome at one point. Rome. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. I would like to go to uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque. Yeah. So those are the three places I would like to visit at some point because I, I would like to see how different faith traditions are reflected uh, in their in their cradle in, in, in at, at least at their epicenters. Mm -hmm. uh, so those are the places I would hope uh, someday before I kick the bucket. I would, uh, but my my primary place that I would like where I would like to grow old and die is Africa. Oh, Africa. Africa anywhere is, in Africa yeah, Af or, or Senegal. Africa, in, in, any, anywhere in Africa, man. Anywhere in Africa is home to me. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, we, we hope that you will get to those uh, places very soon. Thank uh, you. Rome and those two other places you mentioned. Thank you very much. And uh, this was a, an extreme pleasure to have you on the show. So the discussion will continue. I will try to reach good. out to some of the scholars on Sounds the listserv to continue the discussion. Sounds but, really good. And um, I'm very sorry today I haven't been very focused because as I told you, I have been uh, <laughs> out of panels and lack of sleep, but it was very uh, oh, nice. Oh, no, oh, no. You, you, wonderful. As usual, you, you've dropped some valuable knowledge and it is always a no, it's pleasure. A, it's a pleasure talk to you and learn more about your research endeavors. And hopefully we'll invite you again soon to tell us more about your, because you have a big ongoing Ajami project. That's correct, so yeah. I think a couple of years ago, you 
were awarded the National Endowment a grant from the National yeah. Endowment Down for the Humanities. Yeah. And you were doing some wonderful stuff with yeah. Ajami literature. So I would love for okay. uh, our listeners to know more about that yeah. okay. importance okay. of Ajami literature and that yeah. project and what it means for that's yeah, that's, the that's world good. of Africanists. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. All well, right, thank Professor you very Lop, much. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Likewise. And All have right. a wonderful day. You too. All right. Take it easy. All right, folks. Thank you very much for tuning in as usual. And we've heard um, the great professor, Falungam, talk about his research on Ajami literature and the Muridia Sufi order in Senegal. But he also talked about his uh, take on uh, uh, racism in the Arab world that continues to affect people of color, black folks especially and that nobody is really addressing that issue. So for people who are not on the Africa research listserv and who are doing research on Africa, I will highly uh, suggest to get on that listserv and uh, follow the discussion on this important issue, which is racism in the Arab slash the Muslim world and how we can address that as a, a group. Thank you very much for tuning in and I will talk to you sometime soon with another special guest on the Africanist podcast. Lutons pour la paix. Kondiamo Africa, mon laïna. Manejamo Africa, moi sonyo natange.